Welcome to First Formation, spiritual exercise for Christian soldiers looking to get the fuck up and pray. Join Pew Pew HQ every weekday morning to hear the good news through grunts and with grunts in the unity of the Holy Spirit as one church forever and ever. Fall in. Good morning and welcome to First Formation. This is spiritual exercise for Christian soldiers. I'm your host, Logan Isaac. I'm broadcasting from Frederick, Maryland. This morning on First Formation, I am sharing a sermon uh, that I preached uh, many years ago um, at the Circle of at Circle of Hope in Philadelphia, um, and I was invited there by its then pastor Joshua Grace. Uh, the same year that my first book came out, Reborn on the Fourth of July. Um, and I'm posting this uh, just to, you know, kind of uh, add to the offerings of First Formation, but also because Reborn on the Fourth of July is hitting its, like, nine-year mark. Um, and I wanted to bring uh, the Pew Pew crew, as it's continued to grow, uh, bring Reborn on the Fourth of July just kind of back into our imagination um, in anticipation of my third book, God is a Grunt, where I'll be outlining a martial hermeneutic for um, congregations, communities, and families to think about Christian soldiers um, and wrestle with um, God and country, uh, hopefully in that order. Um, and I wanted to upload this sermon, which uh, I've I titled the words with a capital W and S in parentheses, um, because it was a it was actually my second sermon ever. The first was five years to the day after I was baptized in 2006, which kind of set me on the course to getting um, kind of pushed out of the army after a combat deployment and facing my second one as a non-combatant conscientious objector, which you can read about in Reborn of the Fourth of July. Um, and the second sermon I ever gave was notable because there were two services, and it felt weird, um, you know, preaching at two different services. And I thought about like, oh, you know, you know, is it, it feels kind of fake. I'm, I'm, I've got a kind of ratcheted up bullshit detector, which also makes me a little bit self-conscious when um, I'm, I'm asked to do things repetitively as though they're authentic. And so I wrestled with that as I wrote the sermon and as I gave it, and that's kind of one of the themes, how um, there's one, there's two sermons, two services, um, but they're both equally authentic because they are sermons. Um, and I, I speak a little bit about how that kind of dovetails with this saying that I encountered as a Christian soldier um, on active duty, on this idea that soldiering is just a job. And it, I heard it most uh, because I was in a combat arms specialty. I was an artilleryman. Um, I heard it a lot because people wanted to make moral sense of what we do in combat arms specialties. Um, and I had, you know, as part of my application to be a, a non-combatant, um, I had to think about, you know, what do I really believe? Um, and one of those things I stumbled upon believing is like, there's no, it's not, there's no such thing as just a job. You know that the the effect of those words is to minimize our moral responsibility in the things we do, and whether that's said by you know a stockbroker, uh, a, a doctor, or uh, a combatant, 
um, there's no such thing as just a job. It's easy to say because, or it, it helps us feel better um, because it creates this illusion that there's some distinction between what we do from nine to five and who we are as a person. The reality is that we are, we are made of what we do, not only, there's not all that makes us who we are, um, but I believe very strongly that, you know, it, it's, it is an illusion. Um, it's not just a job. It's also the things that we are actually doing and the things that will cause us to be um, culpable or not. Um, and so I talk, of course, as I always do, uh, about how I'm preaching from a position of having served in the military and wrestling through what it means to be uh, a soldier and a Christian uh, and to, to try and be both and love God and country in that order. Um, and so I gave this, um, I, I don't even remember how long ago, I think it was maybe 2012 or 13, right, as Reborn on the 4th of July was coming out. Um, and I think it was actually kind of in anticipation for uh, the book release. Um, but uh, Josh and the the congregants at Circle of Hope, Rod White, the senior pastor, were really gracious. Um, I had some really good questions and answers, uh, which is a part of this uh, church to to do this. Um, but uh, I I invite you all to to listen to the words um, that are coming out of my mouth, and also the word that inspires Christians to do the things that we do, um, and reminds us and convicts us that even those things we wish we didn't have to do. As we do them, we take on the moral substance of those actions, um, that we can't get away from uh, what, we've, what we've done. And there's some things that uh, we should not do, and we should avoid doing at all costs, and if we ever find ourselves doing them, we have to repent uh, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Um, and so I invite you to listen to uh, this sermon preached many, many years ago, almost 10 years ago. Um, and also, if, if, you, if it you know, makes you wonder, uh, wants, makes you want to think more about some of these issues, pick up a copy of Reborn on the 4th of July at pewpewexchange.com. Uh, reach out to me on social or just in general kind of continue to engage in what Pew Pew HQ has to offer both on First Formation uh, and at our website at pewpewhq.com. Well, my website. I'm not going to bullshit you. It's just basically me. Um, but I think it's an important conversation to have about not just the words that come out of our mouths, but the word that makes us who we are and what uh, kind of person we will be um, as we are shaped by this word and we utter words that are shaped by the word. Do you pray with me? In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. May the words of my mouth and the meditations of all our hearts be acceptable to you, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. <clears throat> my first sermon was given July 3rd, 2011, at a church in Durham, North Carolina. I spoke about my love-hate relationship with America right around the time I was in my first year of seminary, writing my first book, which you can find somewhere in the back. It was a year of firsts, you could say. And if that's so, then this year is a, a year of seconds and thirds. Two hours ago, I gave my second sermon, and this will be my third. 
When I was invited to speak to you all, I wasn't sure if I would give one sermon to both services or a unique sermon to each service. I thought about it a lot. It's, it's what I do. You see, I'm a theology student at Duke. And there's a distinction to be made uh, between uh, myself and a divinity student. Since I am not seeking ordination, I never took classes in preaching. That may leave some of you wondering what I'm doing here. I know it's where it left me. Since I don't know much about preaching, uh, I was actually invited to talk to you about whatever I wanted, uh, including the book I just wrote, but images of a bullwhip and upturned tables of money ran that idea out of my head. Preaching is spoken, spirit-filled words from God to the people of God. In many traditions, the Word of God, uh, which is also named for Jesus himself and for Scripture, it's read and a psalm is often sung. The church I attend in Durham is less than 200 people, mostly African-American men and women, and the weekly service is given only at 10 a.m. on Sundays. You either make it or you don't, but we all gather in one place at one time, one cell in the body of Christ, one member of this great family of God. Even when I attend a church that hosts multiple services as a creature of habit, I usually stick to one service every week. I see the same people who often similarly stick to the same service time. In the tradition I've been calling home, we refer to our pastor as father, and I have some issue with that. But to call our little church a family would not be out of place. But what if there were two congregations, two flocks that the priest pastored? It would feel a little bit like daddy had two families. I know it isn't true, it's just a feeling I get, but some questions linger. Like, is the first the practice for the second, making the second better somehow? Does the first one count if I can just correct all my mistakes in the second? Is it a mulligan or a chance for a do-over? Does the size of the congregation equal, in some measure, importance? Does the pastor have a favorite congregation, and is that the one I attend? Both of these sermons I will have preached tonight are real. They are each the word of God proclaimed to God's people. Though the words themselves change little, they are original and vibrant and new. Twice. As a vehicle for God's word, each and every word I share tonight is mysteriously original and authentic. None of them need to be overwritten or awkwardly omitted after I praise the facial reactions some of you might let slip. Nonetheless, it makes me feel weird to say the same thing twice in two different contexts. It feels oddly inauthentic. It feels rehearsed or theatrical or fake. Having multiple service times, it seems on some weird level to violate Jesus' prayer in John 17, 21 that we all may be one. Of course, as a theology student, all this takes on a particular significance. I want to think it through, explain it away, and find a satisfying answer. I feel compelled to figure out what it is I believe in all of this. Well, I believe strongly that with God, there are never rehearsals, do-overs, or mulligans. Every word spoken, every act performed, is, real, is a real and true interaction with God. Worship, most especially. Worship is a name Christians give not just to the music and the prayers, but the sermon, the response, and everything surrounding it all. There's a theological word for worship services. That word is dox doxology. Doxologically speaking, see that's how you know you're speaking to a theology student because they'll use, uh, they'll add ickly at the end of an important sounding word. Doxologically speaking, there is never a word uttered in worship that is merely rehearsal. Every hiccup, Every time I stumble upon a syllable or stutter on a word, God works mysteriously despite my foibles, or so I hope, and so I pray. 
Before I began my sermon tonight, I made a prayer that asked exactly that. May the words of my mouth and the meditations of all our hearts be acceptable to you, O God. These were not merely words from Psalm 19. They were a prayer, a living plea to a living God. They had theological substance. They were, in a word, doxological. There's another way to think about this, which happens to relate to my own specific Christian vocation, my vocatio specialis. Another way to tell a theology student is that they use Greek or Latin to sound smart. Uh, and my, my own vocational specialis has everything to do with cr- Christian faith and military service. Before studying theology, I spent over six years in the United States Army. As, as of now, it's the lengthiest formation of my life. For example, it was longer than high school or college or any other institutional formation. I was also on active duty for over six years and spent much of my time in infantry units as a forward observer for the artillery. Not long after a combat deployment to Iraq, I wrestled with how my professional obligations conflicted with my vocation as a Christian. Something inside me compelled me to doubt that I could love, the enemy, love my enemies at the business end of my M4 rifle or the artillery and mortars I directed. On July 4th in 2006, I was baptized and became a Christian. At that moment, my military profession overlapped my Christian vocation, and I was left to wonder what it might mean to be a Christian soldier. More than once or twice, I heard the mantra, it's just a job. But was it? Does our profession trump our vocation? Is our identity in Christ merely an occupation? Is tonight a business transaction and all of this merely words and sounds, theatrics meant to entertain or occupy time? Or is there substance to it all? Said another way, is it real? When soldiers say it's just a job, what is usually going on is a vain attempt to dissolve the moral substance of what they do. It's a way of saying I'm not ultimately accountable for my actions. After all, at the close of business, or COB formation as we called our final formation of the day, our uniforms came off and we had a normal life to which we returned. At five o'clock my job ended and all the jargon stopped. No more yes sir, no sir, three bags full sir. Language was one of the things that differentiated between my life and my job. Words served as degrees of separation that kept me from calling what I did anything but what it truly was destroying people and things I was told to as an artillery forward observer. As an artilleryman, I worked up fire plans, I detained persons of interest, and sometimes I engaged targets. Phrases like, kill them all, let God sort them out, or all is fair in love and war, worked on my conscience to deny or dismiss my complicity in eviscerating the enemies that Christ commanded me to embrace. Phrases like these deny the moral substance of war and soldiering. They keep us from the truth. No, do not kill them all. No, not all is fair in love and war. For lack of a better word, love and war and preaching are true. They actually occur as real each and every time we perform them. God actually witnesses them and actually cares and is affected by them. Our true selves affect God. Our false selves of targets and fire plans and detentions will be stripped away. They will not last. If that is the case, then those phrases we use in the military are false. They bring death not just to the poor souls in my crosshairs, but to my own person. In relying on them, I and other soldiers were were trying to create a kind of false self, a shell of a person that could take the fall for us, a kind of, uh, to kind of stand in the way of our real complicity. Degrees of separation only work to separate us from the truth. 
Soldiers need the church to remind them of the reality of their acts, of the true nature of every word of their mouth, every beat of their heart, and every squeeze of their trigger finger. We need this reminder not just for the sake of those who suffer our bombs and bullets, but for our own true and real selves. Truth, you see, catches up to us all. We cannot evade our guilt for long before it takes its awful toll. Every day, there has been, and will be, 17 veterans who take their own lives. Men and women who fought in World War II, Vietnam, Korea, and even folks discharged after fighting in Iraq and Afghanistan are taking their lives about once every 80 minutes. In 2009 and 2010, there were more active duty suicides than there were combat fatalities in the global war on terror. This year, there has been an average of one active duty suicide every day, a pace that will break the last record set last year. Since 2005, every new year has been a new record. It is the highest rate of suicide of any recorded demographic in our country in our entire history. Jesus even predicted it at Gethsemane, telling Peter that those who live by the sword will die by the sword. But soldiers are falling on their own swords and are falling to the sword. Jesus' words were not a dismissive, self-righteous threat. They were a foreboding observation, a lament. Many people don't really know what to do in the face of this incredibly startling reality. It is instinctual to keep a safe distance, to not act until we know precisely how, to remain silent until we have the right words. But in the church's relationship to soldiers, distance is an illusion. Action is required, and silence is a betrayal. Distance, for one, does not exist between the church and the poor in spirit like those who end their own lives with such alarming frequency. Soldiers and veterans stand before you in the grocery line, sit beside you on the L train. They may be giving a lecture from behind a podium or speaking a word of God to you from behind a pulpit. Safe distance between you and those who are suffering does not exist. It is false. It is that shell that I built around me to shield me from the truth. Action, furthermore, is required. Faith calls us to act. Christ calls us to respond. To do nothing is not an option. I imagine each of you here have heard the call of God in your lives in some way, shape, or form. You know that it has been uttered. God knows that it has been uttered. Refusal to respond is an active choice that has grave consequence. Silence, then, is not an option. It is a betrayal. Silence is the inexcusable refusal to acknowledge the presence and power suffering has over this world. Words have power to create or destroy. It is the word that has redeemed us from suffering, from death. And we are to utter words that are creative and compassionate, that break forth love in our broken and destructive world. So what are we to do? What words does the church have for soldiers and veterans caught up in a world at war? Well, to begin with, we have, in some traditions, what is known as the Eucharistic prayer. Eucharist means thanksgiving. Though it is hard to describe the words we utter in that prayer as words of gratitude. The last things said in some congregations before the pastor consumes Holy Communion are, Lord, I am not worthy to receive you, but only say the word and I shall be healed. Christian thanksgiving is expressed doxologically by penance and hope for absolution, for forgiveness. The liturgy continues in the voice of Jesus, who tells us that communion is done in memory or in remembrance of him. It's curious, then, that these words we use in memory of Christ were given to us by a soldier. The words come from Matthew 8 and Luke 7, a story about a Roman military commander called a centurion, who Jesus said had faith greater than all of Israel. 
This person represented the system, the man, Big Brother, and all the institutions that oppressed and enslaved Jews in the first century Palestine. The officer was praised, it should be noted, not for his military service, but for his humble faith. He knew that as a man of war, he was not worthy to receive the Prince of Peace. Other words the church has for soldiers come from the very mouth of Jesus, whom dutiful soldiers arrested and abused as a detainee, eventually even nailing his hands and feet to the cross. These actions would not have elicited one iota of guilt, as they were certain to be simply obeying orders. They were, after all, only doing their job. Luke 23:34 records Jesus' words for the soldiers to the Father as, Forgive them, for they know not what they do. To be a Christian means that we believe these words <clears throat> among the final human utterances of the eternal creator to have the same power as the words, let there be light. The same awesome and creative force that spawned the cosmos, brought light from nothing, and sustains the entire universe is that which forgives those who act in ways we steadfastly oppose, those who we see as our enemy. These words are true, and they are good. They remind those who hear them of their inherent very goodness, even those who have seen hell firsthand and can't get the sights and sounds and smells out of their hearts and souls and minds. They remind us that all they remind us all that our story does not begin in Genesis 3 with the fall, but in Genesis 1. In verse 31, God calls us all very good, even those who suffer the curse of Cain, our fratricidal forebear and fellow wanderer. These words, the word, remind us all that the, the mark God gives Cain is not one of condemnation, but protection. Cain's curse to wander lasted all of three verses. God tells him in the third book of Genesis that he will be a restless wanderer on the earth in verse 13. But by verse 16, he has settled in the land of Nod. The mark itself was not a curse, but a promise that none who found him would kill him from Genesis 4:15. God promises protection to those who know not what they do in bearing the sword, even from themselves. Jesus, God's word, protects and defends even against oneself all the way to his own cross. He dies even for those who kill. These words are as true and as good right now as they were two hours ago. There are no rehearsals in worship, no mulligans, no do-overs, no practice rounds or warm-ups. From the moment we respond to God, everything is before a live audience, human as well as divine. The time is now and the place is here. How will you respond to the presence and power of suffering in our world? How will this church and this people undo the privilege of silence, especially in reference to people who suffer the hidden wounds of war, not thousands of miles away and cultures apart, but right here in this country called America that we love and hate. God is there in us, buried beneath repeated deployments and the deafening silence that greets us upon our, our return. Soldiers and veterans have no tr trouble believing the truth that, Lord, we are not worthy to receive you. The church must remind them that the, of the rest of the prayer, that it takes but a word and we shall be healed. There is no such thing as just a job, no such thing as just a sermon. This sermon is real and significant, even though I said largely the same thing two hours ago. There is no escaping the moral and doxological reality of our sometimes mundane, sometimes martial, everyday lives. Our actions have consequences. Our words have power. 
God is honored or dishonored by every beat of our heart, by every breath of our lungs. God has given us the words to pray. Now it is our turn to repeat them again and again until we are one cell, one body, one people, until we are the answer to his prayer. God grant us the strength to respond with our words, with our hearts, with our actions, and with our lives. Amen. Thank you for falling into First Formation, where PewPewHQ shares morning prayers for the humble, hardy folk caught in the crosshairs of God and country. If you like what you've heard, you can participate in one of the three following ways. First, you can support the podcast at patreon.com slash pewpewhq. You can contribute as little as a dollar a month, and you can cancel at any time if I ever piss you off. Second, you can become a co-host by recording a lectionary reading for a future episode. Instructions will be provided, and you don't have to be a grunt to collaborate with PewPewHQ in this or any way. Finally, you can also record and send prayer requests of a minute or less. Prayers can be included in the episode, read anonymously if you wish, or kept private for me to pray for off-air. So there you have it, three ways to participate in First Formation. I hope you'll continue to listen, even if I can't convince you to jump in. This has been Brother Logan Isaac, always faithful, always family. Semper Familia.